0: If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, you can find Philippians chapter 3. We'll be looking at the very end of that chapter. Philippians chapter 3 in our study of the joyful life and the sermon, Heaven's Citizens Holding Earthly Visas. In our study of Philippians so far, we have been challenged to pursue real joy. And to do so by finding our true identity in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, leaving behind the baggage of our past and pressing on towards Christ's likeness, which we will ultimately experience those of us who know Him when we get to heaven, right? And so last week, we reminded you of several divine things you need to do. And this is that passage where he said, don't, you know, you know I, I'm, I've not arrived. It's not that I've already obtained. And the first thing we said, you need, you need if you're going to pursue Christ's likeness toward eternity, you need to have divine dissatisfaction. And you need to have divine disregard, forgetting those things which are behind. And as well, you need divine determination, straining, Toward those things which are before. That takes determination. And you need divine discipline. I press on toward the mark for the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And now, this sermon today is sort of an addendum to last week's, but it's much, much more than an addendum. But we're adding a fifth point to it with the remaining balance of the the verses in chapter 3 with divine discernment. divine discernment to discern means to be able to see things divinely you see things the way God sees them when you have discernment that's one thing when you have divine discernment then you're looking the way God wants you to look I see three looks in this passage of scripture I I want you to see as we conclude these verses in Philippians 3 beginning in verse 17 brothers Notice he's talking to Christians. Paul is talking to the Christians. We never assume everybody's a Christian. I don't assume all of you are Christians. But many of you are. And to those of you who aren't, take note of some of the warnings that are in this passage. Brothers, join in imitating me. That's, we get our word mimic from the word imitating. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory, they glory in their shame. Their minds, here's the summary statement, is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await or le- rather, you could, if you have an ESV, I'm so disappointed with the ESV here. Virtually every other English translation has the word eagerly in front of it. It's a triple compound word. It should be in there. Eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, and aren't you glad, to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Three discerning looks toward likeness, And here's the first. Look around for godly examples. And notice I've underlined the letter S. Look at that verse 17 again. Brothers, join in imitating me. This isn't an ego trip, as you'll see in a moment. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And this, by the way, is classic. I mean, this is classic uh, follow the rabbi terminology. If you've ever heard that expression, it's actually in the New Testament when Jesus saw disciples, they're mending their nets, he said what? Follow me. Uh, back in the first century when a Jewish rabbi saw something, he saw, the, he saw in another young man the, uh, the spiritual aptitude, he saw the wiring, he saw the makeup, that he could be a leader and possibly a, a rabbi, he would say two words. It was the greatest honor a young boy could receive. Follow me. Imitate me. That's what he was saying. And this is rabbinical terminology that Paul is using here when he's saying, do the same thing. Follow me and And he uses us, so he's including those like Epaphroditus and Timothy who were with him. And he even refers to the greater congregation here. So he's using that rabbinical terminology with the word imitate and then keep your eyes on. That's the word skopos. We get our word scope from this word. And this is exactly what a follower of a rabbi would do. They would lock eyes on the rabbi. They would follow him wherever he went. They'd sleep where they, they slept. They'd eat where they ate. They copied, virtually copied what they did. This is classic discipleship stuff here. And Paul is inviting them to scope him out, to look at him. And not just him. But his party, his greater party, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and anyone else who, and really, really, then he points into those, notice he says, those who walk according, because Paul's not there. He's in jail, remember? He's back in Rome. He's in jail. They can't watch him, but they can watch the greater congregation. And again, I draw your attention to the the fact he doesn't say find a godly example, but godly examples. It's troubling to me When someone speaks of that one person who made all the difference in their lives. Because all that means is you picked up all their idiosyncrasies, too. You picked up all the bad stuff and the mess in their life. Not that they weren't good examples, but like D.A. Carson writes, a single model cannot fully display all the facets of following Christ and may have personal weaknesses, that will not be apparent as such unless there is someone else to whom the model can be compared. True statement. Now that said, he is inviting them to look at him as an example. And if I'm not an example, if I'm not an example beyond the words you're hearing coming out of my mouth, I'm not worth those words. You shouldn't follow me. You should run from me. And for most of you, many of you at least, this is all you get from me right? You get the platform, you get the pulpit, you get the preaching, you get the, the illustrations, you get the appeal, if there is any. But if this is all you get from me, it better be the real me. Not some make-believe, phonier in a $3 bill version. Because those of you, and there are many of you who do know me, you know my imperfections. Thought I'd get lots of amens out of that one my shortcomings, the things that might rub you the wrong way, that's the reason why you need, I need, we need multiple examples in our lives. That's why the church is called the body of Christ. We are the the collective fullness of Christ, so to speak. And that's why you don't want to just keep your eyes on one person. Paul did say to Timothy, he says, the things you've learned from me among many witnesses, these commit unto faithful men, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, who can teach others also. There's four generations in that passage. And that's, again, classic discipleship because real discipleship produces generations of followers of Jesus. And much of it as we follow godly examples, and here's the deal. If you're a real follower of Jesus, then you become an example. Someone should be looking up to you eventually, not if you're a brand-new Christian, but if you've been hanging around the church for 30 years, you've known Jesus for 20, somebody ought to be following you in some way. Are they? I mean, I always cringe when somebody... You know, When you think about being a parent, if you have kids... Uh, Your kids look like you, they act like you, not entirely, but I always cringe at the one who says, I don't want to be like my mom, or I don't want to be like my dad. And invariably, they end up looking like their mom or their dad, and they act like them too. It's just there in the DNA. There's a spiritual DNA that takes place through discipleship. It's the process of becoming like the one who's discipling you. Jesus said that the disciple is not above his teacher, his master, his, the one who's discipling him. But the one that's fully trained, Luke 6, 40, will be what? Like his master. Have you ever read that? So there, there it is. In the first century, these were basically followers, imitators, lookalikes of those who trained them. Right, we have our motto here, right? More people, what? More like Pat, Amen. How bad would that be? But if Pat isn't pointing you to Jesus, follow me as I follow Christ, then I'm not worth the salt that I claim to have, much less the words coming out of my mouth. But here's the deal: if you want, do you want to resist temptation? I'm asking you a question: do you want to resist temptation? Then follow somebody who has. Do you want to know how to love your neighbor? Then follow somebody who does. The other day, my wife kicked me out of the house to go help shovel the neighbor's lawn. I have to admit, it wasn't all on me. I, I mean, she, I, okay, I'm going. So I went. Hell, I, and, and my other neighbor, Kevin Thomas, former uh, past, uh, pastor on staff who had a heart attack and a stroke, took him out. He'd already shoveled his own driveway. It was three-fourths done with the driveway. I went to help him shovel. I said, and they said you had a heart issue. But I said to him then, I said, Kevin, this is the Kevin I've known for a long time. This is, this is Kevin Thomas. If anybody knows who Kevin Thomas is, and you, I mean, he served here for 13 years. He was always the guy showing up to move people from one. He always had a refrigerator on his back or something. He's the guy you follow if you want to know how to really love your neighbor. You want to become a soul winner? Hang out with those who win souls. Don't just go read a book. You want to be humble. If you want to be humble, do you want to be humble? Then follow the guy who actually is, is unashamed to admit his faults, his sins, ask for forgiveness, and repent. Don't follow the person who can, tell you, can teach you on repentance. Follow the one who shows you what a repentant life looks like. You want to be a godly leader. Follow the guy who actually leads in a way that that elevates the spirituality of those who are following him. You want to be a a godly dad, a great dad, a great mom, a great husband, a great wife. I could point to 15 people in the church right now. Follow them. Hang with them. Spend some time with them. They're your examples. And this is why Paul uses the plural when he speaks of examples because no one person can Give you everything you need, right? So, the first area of divine discernment is to look around for godly examples. And then comes the warning look out for godless enemies. This isn't Instagram Christianity, okay? The Bible doesn't recognize Instagram. Christianity. And I'm okay with the Instagram pictures that have the nice little verses on them and all that. I, they're cool. I get them. But the Bible warns us as well as encourages us. Can I get an amen from that? And you have a very powerful warning. After telling us to, be, uh, to follow the examples, he says, but many of whom I have, I have told you and now even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and when he says telling you with tears, the Greek says, I speak weeping. Have you ever talked to somebody who started to tell you, told you a story and then they sort of broke down and, and they were weeping and, you know, it just gets to you. You, you feel like you start crying. You're, you're crying right along with them, right? That's, that's what Paul's saying here. I'm saying this. Paul wasn't, Paul wasn't the iron man who didn't get emotional. He's very emotional. Last week, I was uh, visiting one of the Christian schools that many of our kids go to, and I was, I was given a tour of the school. In fact, my kids went to the school years ago, and, and uh, I walked into one of the classes, a the theology class that was in session, it was full of kids, and I walked in, and here was Rob Seiler, and uh, he looked at me, and he welcomed me, and then he, he directed all the kids to give their attention to me, and I was just popping in, and he said, Pastor Nemers, do you have a word for us? And it just caught me so off guard. Because I was, I was looking at a guy, in and, and just a flash, I thought of my two youngest boys to whom the enemies of the cross had put their talons into and were ripping apart. I'd shed a flood of tears over those boys, but now I'm looking at the guy who joined me in those tears, who stood in the gap for those boys, who prayed for those boys, who encouraged those boys, who was there for those boys when they weren't walking with Jesus. And I started to tell the kids about him. I, I lost it. I, I couldn't keep talking. I literally walked out of the class. I, I, I feel like I was being disrespectful. He knew I wasn't. I just couldn't talk. I was so caught up. And I wonder, are there any weepers out here? Is anyone here willing to weep over those who are being deceived by the enemies of the cross? The joyful life has warnings to look out for those who would deny the cross by their lives, they might have lip service. Paul is talking about people who are clearly professing to be Christians, but there's nothing about them that would say that they were. And he uses provocative language. Look at it. They are enemies of the cross. I'm studying this, and I was thinking about a woman in our church that not no longer here. You know, She made a profession of faith, got baptized, said all the right words. Her life was a train wreck going in. It was a train wreck throughout. It's still a train wreck. And I see her every once in a while. And my heart is sad when I see her. But she's not the one Paul's warning us about because she's not fooling anybody. Paul's warning us about those who would fool us by their words, but their lives don't back it up here. That's what he's saying here. And he basically describes them in two ways. Enemies of the cross are hell-bound and they're earth-bound. You see that there? Their end is, verse 19, destruction. We get a word of Polyon from this word. They're going to be destroyed forever in hell. They're hellbound. That's strong words, isn't it? Their God is their belly. That's not talking about their eating habits. It's talking about the fact that they're so grounded in the sensualities of the world. There's nothing Christ-like about them. They're, and they glory in their shame. Not only are they shameful, they boast about the way they live. Here's how Jeremiah put it. He said this. He said this in chapter 6. Jeremiah chapter 6. I'll just read it here. If I can. There it is. All right. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No. They're not ashamed. They didn't even know how to blush. That's an enemy of the cross is what that is. And here's what I would say to you. I can't see the hearts of doomed people, but I can watch their lives. And that's what Paul is telling us to do here. Watch the lives. Listen to the lips, but watch the lives of those who would profess to know Christ, but really don't. Those described here clearly are not living the transformed life. Jesus said you'll know them by their what? By their fruit. He's telling you to check it out. He's telling you to watch. He's not telling you to stick a dipstick in there and pull it out, because you can't do that. But if you watch their lives, you can make moral judgments. And and there's the summary. He summarizes it here with these, after this provocative language, he says, with minds set on earthly things. That's basically a summary of their lives. They're earthbound bound. So I would ask you this question this morning. Are you truly saved or are you earthbound in all of your passions, all of your affections, your God is your belly, you're not really saved? Do you have a credible testimony? Is it real? Is it believable? Just the other day, Did a membership class with Brad Posley. He started helping me with membership classes last year. And man, what a godsend that was. Not only is he a good theologian, but he just took a lot off my plate. So together, we do this together. And we got to the testimony part, about 25 potential members. And we talked about what it means to give a testimony, how you give a testimony. And so, like I've done for 20 years, I shared my own testimony, my life before I was saved, all the immorality, all the drugs, all the marijuana, which was a lot more dramatic until it became all legal. But anyway, <laughs> I got done with my story, and then I said, Well, Brad, sure, you're. So Brad steps up and shares his story. Brad's raised in a Christian home, godly parents, wonderful experience, saved when he was a little boy. It was a wonderful testimony. And it hit me, and I shared with the class. You don't have to have an incredible story, but you have to have a credible story. It's gotta be real, it's gotta be believable, is it? If somebody followed you for a whole month, just shadowed you, like a follower of a rabbi would do, for a whole month, what would they conclude? Are you earthbound, or are you heaven-bound? Look out for the enemies of the cross. Jude says they'll creep in unaware. The final look is look up for your great expectation. It's Jesus, He's coming again. Do you believe that? Paul can't wait to get to this here. He says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's your citizenship? This is the only time this word is ever used. Actually, the word citizenship, we get our English word politic from this word. Who said politics and religion don't mix? There it is. The highest privilege, if you were in the first century, from a citizen perspective, the highest privilege would be to be a Roman citizen. And with all of its advantages and all of its exemptions that you would have if you were a full-fledged citizen. It surpassed even the esteemed citizenship that all of you have as U.S. citizens today. But the Philippians, because of where they were on the Aegean Sea, while they were a Roman colony, they were never full-fledged Roman citizens. Never full-fledged anyway. Which is interesting because the word, the word uh, citizenship literally means colony of foreigners. So that would make sense, wouldn't it? That's what it literally means, colony of foreigners. But I mean, these, and these, were, not, these were days of travel, but you'd have to be pretty rich to travel. Probably 98% of these Philippians had never been to Rome They'd never seen it. They didn't have TV. They didn't have satellite. They didn't have Rick Steves. But they had heard of Rome. They could envision Rome. It had been described to them, but they'd not been there. It kind of sounds like heaven. Heaven. And so it becomes a natural illustration for for Paul. And Paul is saying, your real citizenship, our real citizenship, the one we should take the greatest pride in, is not here on earth, not here in the United States, but heaven. That's why we say that Christians are heaven's citizens holding earthly visas. That's who we are. And we should be eagerly waiting for Jesus. Are you? This is a This is a triple compound word. It it literally means to await. It literally carries the idea of waiting that puts behind everything that might hold you down. That's the idea in the word. Waiting that puts behind everything that might hold you down. I'm thinking some of us have a lot that's holding us down. And that's why we're not eager about it anymore. I was so eager about Jesus' return when I first came to Christ. Prophecy, in fact, God used it to bring me into the kingdom of God. And I don't know if it's just me, but it seems like there is this, there is this de-emphasis on the return of Jesus. For the last 20 years, hardly anybody talks about looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, like Paul said to Titus. Would you agree? I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's the sign of the times. I don't know if it's just bad theology or just spirituality or lack thereof. They're not looking up like we're supposed to. At the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul said to the Corinthians, Maranatha, O Lord, come. And by the way, Maranatha is an Aramaic term. The, The New Testament was written in Greek. So, a lot of theologians believe that Paul was talking to those hurting Jewish Christians who were suffering for their faith in Christ, having rejected Judaism, and now receiving their Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and they're looking for him to come, and so he says, Maranatha. And why not? Why not be looking for him? Look what he's going to do, verse 21. He's going to transform your lowly body. Amen? He's going to transform it. The word, we get our word schematics from this word transform. It means to change inside with an outward change in your appearance. And by the looks of most of us, that'd be a good thing, right? And he's going to change your lowly body. You notice that? It's lowly. And the older you get, the more lowly it goes. Amen? helping one of my kids move the other day, and I don't throw stuff around like I used to. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> Those who have been around Sailorville for many years know there's a, just a tremendous man of God, always the smartest man in the room, working on and tearing apart computers just till a couple of years ago. He turned 95 years old on, Saturday, on Friday. Art Cross. I love that guy. Deacon for many years. Um, <laughs> you know, Art, uh, Art's so smart. Uh, several years ago, I had a car that went bonkers on me. The entire instrument panel just, start, just went crazy. And I took it in. The dealer said, we're going to have to pull the call off and all this stuff. It's going to cost $600 and dollars. I don't have $600. So I told Art about it. Art goes, no problem. Leave it with me. I left it with, he came back in an hour and was fine. He said, here's your problem. He pulled out a penny. He said, "Uh, this was in your cigarette lighter. Short-circuited everything. I said, how the heck did you find that? He says, oh, I just looked at the schematics. Do you know how to read the schematics on your car? The back, you know, all those lines and stuff? He looked at the schematics, and it led him to the cigarette lighter where the problem was, took it out, was fine. If Art Cross were in this room this morning, I would say to him, Art, you're 95 years old. But it won't be long before your Savior will take your lowly body and he, because he's got the schematics, right? He's got the schematics on our bodies. And he will transform it into that body that it used to be when you were younger. But it will be even better because the text says it will be like His glorious body, dynamic, forever young, and glorious. And you who know Jesus Christ have the same hope. We know that because he's able by his power to subject all things to himself, the omnipotent God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you know him? He's calling you to divine discernment today. To look around, look out, and look up because he's coming again. Father in heaven, thank you for this time that we could spend in this wonderful passage of scripture that isn't just putting up niceties and flowery language but language that both encourages and warns us and fills us with anticipation. Father, I'm I'm concerned for my own self. I don't have that. I, I wish I had that excitement I had when I first came to know Jesus to look for him to come back again. I want it, God. Give it to me. To eagerly wait for you, Lord Jesus, to transform my lowly body as well as everyone's here who knows you. There are some, Lord, in this room, and I just prayed with a young man just before this service who's in here now. And he is burdened by his sins. He has succumbed to the enemies of the cross. He set his affections in this world. But how glad I am, Lord, that you have caused him to be humble. And it seems to me, Lord, he was even ready to cry out to you for salvation. I pray that he would right now and that others in this room would do the same. That those of us who know you, Lord, would live our lives with expectation, starting with me, looking for that blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we say with the Apostle Paul, O Lord, come. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.